I love the church. Having committed my life to serving the Lord Jesus more than 30 years ago, I've carried out that service in local churches in Sydney and in Canberra and even in the United Kingdom. And for the last 17 years, I've served at Moore College. As I mentioned, that's the main training centre for the Sydney Diocese. And every day I have the opportunity to serve 50 or 60 churches as I teach men and women who will one day be their leaders in various faith communities. And as I mentioned, even if my students don't go off and work for a church like this, then they'll be working for a church on a university campus or possibly one overseas. I do what I do because I love the Lord and I love the church. Now, all work has aspects that are more toil than dominion, especially on Mondays, right? But I think the worst part of my job is learning about the subsequent failings and fallings of my students. The younger men whom I had in my home, with whom I prayed, with whom I ate lunch, as we wrestled together over the deeper things of God. We shared our very lives together as we went on mission and served churches in other places and even at times joined in family holidays. Then having left college, they go out to serve in a church somewhere full of promise and passion and I find out that they've forsaken their marriage vows betrayed sacred trusts or renounced their faith altogether. The experience is in equal parts mystifying and maddening, dismaying and discouraging. But I don't for a minute think of myself as a victim, no matter how much my trust might be betrayed. My testimony, especially for those of you who have been victims of the situations that I've mentioned, My testimony is simply that even those who might otherwise look like they're in positions of power in a church or a church institution, they're not free from the special way in which Christian community makes a contribution to our brokenness. In fact, I I recall attending uh, a parish vision event uh, many years back now at which the rector encouraged us all to write three words on a piece of paper to describe our experience of church. I wrote, deeply, deeply disappointing. So how does the Gospel speak to our brokenness in this, possibly the last place you would expect? How does the Gospel speak to our brokenness in church? As ever, we're totally reliant on the Lord to enable us to comprehend such a mystery and to find grace to help us in our time of need. So please join with me as I pray for the power of God's Spirit to be at work in us and through us by his word. Let's pray together, please. Our great God and loving Heavenly Father, we pray that you would have mercy on us, that your Spirit would open our ears and our hearts to hear your word so that we might turn and live. Amen. 
Now, I've been asked to explore with you the brokenness of church, specifically how we grapple with the stains on our past and present, our complicity in sin and the harm we have caused. Uh, At least that's what your beloved rector wrote on Facebook. Now, since I've been given a full 20 minutes to fill up 2,000 years, I thought I should narrow my focus a little bit and concentrate on some essential gospel truths that give us hope as we live between the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and his glorious return. So for tonight, for this evening, I will focus on what the gospel reveals about the sinfulness of sin, the holiness of God's spirit and the hope of judgment. The sinfulness of sin, the holiness of God's spirit and the hope of judgment. So firstly then, the gospel reveals to us the sinfulness of sin. It may seem easy enough to recount circumstances in which you've been affected by the brokenness of church, whether in this one or more institutionally, but to come to grips with such a mystery requires the insight that really only God's word can provide. The first thing that the gospel reveals to us is the sinfulness of sin in our context of affirmation. You see, we need more than Twitter rage to help us understand what is going on in our world and the Bible is our key. So please turn with me to Romans chapter 8 and I want to have a look at verses uh, from verse 5 onward for a little bit. Romans chapter 8 and I'll read a bit from verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. In verse 6, the mind governed by the flesh is death. In verse 7, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Now Paul here is describing a mindset that is guided and governed by fleshly desires, as he says in verse 5. Rather than separating mind and body, the key thing about this desire is the direction that the desire sends us in. It's an aspiration towards death. It's an intention that is hostile towards God. It's a motivation to rebel against or act in defiance towards God. Notice how active these descriptions are. The individual sinner is not passively aggressive towards God or inexplicably out of sorts with him. Our sin is a deep inner desire that is directed towards God, hostile, rebellious, defiant. Now all these explicit statements about what the Bible calls sin are significant from the perspective of our contemporary therapeutic culture of affirmation. Our contemporary culture is rather allergic, I think, to any behaviour that has a whiff of judgmentalism about it. Our preference is to look to some kind of contextual factors that will mitigate the circumstances of an individual's actions. 
even some of the worst offenders. So, we look for the kind of socially defined external or structural constraints that have caused someone to behave the way that they do. Think of the way the narrative of intergenerational violence seeps into discussions about intimate partner violence. As if because a man has experienced violence, he can't stop from punching the lights out of his partner. He just has to do it. The alternative to structural descriptions in our culture of individual affirmation is to appeal to some kind of internal compulsion, be it mental or physical, that somehow predetermines the responses of the individual. Think of the way the lone gunman in a mass shooting is diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. Whatever the factors we identify, socially, we're driven by a need to ensure that, wherever possible, an individual is not necessarily or exclusively responsible for their actions. In our church context, when it comes to addressing the sinfulness of sin, I rather suspect we've adapted or possibly even accommodated to this larger social pressure by relying on euphemisms like, well, broken, instead of the language of the Bible, which is more like rebellious, resentful, envious, defiant. Now, brokenness may well be the description of the consequences of our action, but it's an amoral term for our state before God. In order to grasp the sinfulness of sin, we cannot avoid the fact that we sin because we want to. We choose self before God and before others, no matter how close they are to us. We won't really be able to grapple with the stain on our past, whether it's the Crusades or institutional child abuse or the stolen generation. We won't be in a position to feel the weight of injustice in which we're complicit until we admit the black-hearted deathfulness of self-serving sin. The Gospel reveals to us the sinfulness of sin. It's like the warnings about smoking that are now available on cigarette packets. When I was at university, back when it was free, smoking was cool. Everybody who spoke was cool. You had packets, warnings, smoking's a health hazard. But really, it was okay. Then, thankfully, medical advocates won out and the evidence about smoking actually came out and there were all those gruesome ads with doctors squeezing plaque out of arteries. And now when you go into a, a servo or a 7-Eleven to buy a packet of cigarettes, there it is on the cover. This is what cigarette smoking will do to your body. It's a severe mercy to be sure, but in the Gospel, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus reveals to us the language, the categories we need to make thinkable the disappointment we feel, the outrage we experience, the despair that we might be edged towards when we think about sin in the church. 
This alarmingly simple principle explains everything from slavery to sexism and every other indignity and betrayal in between. It seems fantastic at one level that so much evil could be wrought on so many for so long. Surely there's more to it. But from the perspective of the gospel, the genealogy of immorality is alarmingly straightforward. As Paul writes in Romans 5 verse 12, Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. All well and good, you might say. Even if we were, to prepare, if we were prepared to admit that sinfulness of sin as I've described it, Surely what I'm referring to is the sinfulness of sin outside the church. How does the gospel make sense of the sin we experience within Christian community? Well, this is where we need to turn to what the gospel reveals about the holiness of the Spirit of God. In the gospel, we hear of the work of the Spirit that distinguishes God's holy actions in justifying sinners from the spirit of our age that simply seeks to justify sin. The grace of God in the gospel is twofold through Jesus Christ and in the Holy Spirit. Look again at Romans 8 and this time at verse 2. Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Sinners are justified before God. Their sins are forgiven. They are considered righteous in God's eyes because the just penalty for sin, which is death, was paid by Jesus in their place. That payment made by the Son of God is credited to sinners by the Father in the power of the Spirit. In the grace of God, the sinless righteousness of Jesus the Christ is extended towards us through the Spirit's gift of faith. Or as Paul describes it in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, To the one who trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Now this dynamic uh, is what the Protestant reformers of the 16th century called the great exchange. My sin is credited to Christ and his righteousness is credited to me. So Christians, those who make up the church, are considered righteous before God, but they do not become sinless. They are righteous in God's sight purely because when God the Father looks at us, he sees his perfect son, Jesus the Christ. Now you may have seen that uh, illustration that preachers sometimes use to talk about the great exchange between us and Christ. This book represents my sin, everything that I have done wrong and Christ himself is perfect without sin but when he goes to the cross he takes my sin upon himself and I'm free from sin. He dies the sin that death deserves, he dies the death that sin deserves 
And so now God sees us as free. Unfortunately, that story only tells, that story illustration only tells half the truth. Christ certainly does take the penalty of my sin upon me, upon himself, but in doing so, he actually covers over me with his righteousness. So that God no longer sees my sin because of the righteousness of Jesus that's credited to me. Apart from the intercession of Christ, my identity as a sinner is still rebellious, defiant and envious. You see, in terms of the righteousness of God, I'm Christ's plus one. It's his invitation, it's his righteousness and I get to tag along. The grace of God in the Gospel reveals that I'm justified before God, forgiven by my sin, but also at the same time still a sinner. We keep sinning. We keep doing the evil which we hate. Now this state of being both justified and a sinner seems precarious to be sure, but that's not the last of it, thankfully. Through the Gospel we not only receive righteousness as a gift, Through the Gospel we learn that this gift of righteousness comes to us in the power of God's Spirit. Look again at Romans 8, verse 9. You are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, and even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. In the power of the Spirit, the righteousness of Christ is now ours, even if sin makes our bodies subject to death. In fact, the power of the Spirit gives us life so that we might put the misdeeds of the body to death. Look at verse 12 of Romans 8. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it's not to the flesh to live according to it, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So God is at work in us by his Spirit to enable us to be Christ-like. But where we do not see the image of Christ amongst the church, that's because the Spirit of Christ isn't present. How can those who claim to be Christian fail so spectacularly? Well, here is the space in human existence, in the history of the church, in which we can fit all the evils that have been done in the name of Christ throughout the centuries, both great and small. For you see, things like the Crusades, the Inquisition, institutional child abuse, whatever they are, the fallenness of the mighty in our mega churches, they were done in the spirit of nationalistic fervour, racial supremacy, misogynist bigotry. They weren't done in the power of the Holy Spirit. When the spirit of the times is confused with the spirit of Christ, then the values of the contemporary culture supersede the fruit of the spirit. Rather than leading to life in the spirit, they lead to death. When the power of the individual or the individual's power of self-actualization is confused with the power of the spirit, 
then self-sacrifice or love of enemies will be absent and powerful people will take over. Well, what hope then is there for us? That's where the Gospel reveals to us the hope of judgment. In the Gospel we hear of a certain hope of the judgment of God where Christ himself will be vindicated and those who trust in him will be redeemed from sin, death and evil everlastingly. You see, the Gospel is quite explicit about the state of our world and our experience in it. Look at verse 20 of chapter 8 of Romans. For the creation was subject to frustration, its bondage to decay. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present. Not only so, but we ourselves who had the first fruit of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption to sonship, which is the redemption of our bodies. The world in which we live is subject to frustration, in bondage to decay, it's groaning. And here is where our language of brokenness is perfectly appropriate. The world is frustrated, decaying and groaning because of our sin. And the very fact that we perceive there is a problem with the world is again due to the ministry of God's Spirit. Be it explicitly in those of us who have the first fruits, as Paul calls them, or implicitly in the world around us. Yet within this season of suffering, God's promise is that redemption is coming. Look at verse 19. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. The creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Central to this redemption is the general resurrection where all who have died will be raised to life again at the command of the glorious Lord Jesus. Or as Paul says in verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been growing, not only so, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we await the redemption of our bodies, our resurrection to a body without sin, death and evil. And here's the thing, the point of this resurrection is so that all who have lived can be called to account for their life that God has given them. Paul describes it like this in chapter 14 of Romans. We will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess and acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. What we hear in the Gospel is that the wholeness of ours as a church is a promise to be perfected when the Lord Jesus raises us in the power of the Spirit to stand before the judgment seat of God, when all things will be made right. You see, at the judgment of God, all victims will be vindicated and all perpetrators will receive the due penalty for their crimes. There will be no hiding anymore. There'll be no conniving or contorting of justice, God will require an account from everyone for all their sin. Now, of course, this is where the gospel language of salvation becomes so important to us. We are saved from God's wrath through faith in the death of Jesus for us. 
At the final judgment, our trust in the promises of the gospel will be vindicated once and for all because the Lord Jesus himself will be vindicated against all those who acted in his name treacherously. Those who used his name to conquer countries, to subjugate people, to oppress the poor. The Lord himself will be vindicated against them. God justifies us against any charge and we who have in greater or lesser ways lived in according with the flesh can now be considered righteous before God and will be saved from condemnation then. Or as Paul writes in verse 34, who then is one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who raised to life, is at the right hand of God and also intercedes for us. The greatest of the gospel promises for us, for the church, is that Christ Jesus presents his righteousness before God, his death to pay for our sin, so that God's wrath is averted from our sin, we're forgiven and glorified with him everlastingly. And so, we repent. We ask for forgiveness. And we see ourselves, we identify ourselves as the forgiven. That's the reason why when we come to church like this, we start off our time together, apart from announcements about garages, we start off our time together by confessing our sin. That's an identity statement. We meet here as the forgiven. Those who desperately need the gift of righteousness that comes through the Lord Jesus. Those who need the life that comes in the power of his spirit. And those who need the hope of being saved from God's judgment. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would have mercy on us for Jesus' sake and empower us by your spirit to live with the mindset of the spirit putting to death the misdeeds of the body and looking always to honour Jesus in word and deed. Amen.